January 22nd, 2009. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Richard Parmeter, who is professor and HHMI investigator at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Around the room we have Charlie Wilson. Hi. We have Gary Galfo. Hello. Rama Ratnam. Hello. Carlos Palladini. Hi, how are you doing? And I'm your host, Selma Qureshi. So, Richard, you started your career as a biochemist studying catecholamine synthesis and are now spending much of your time thinking about the neural basis of motivational behavior, or some of your time, actually, since you have many things going on. Um, could you describe the process of this transition to us a little bit, just how it came to pass? I actually started my career as an endocrinologist studying hormone action first in the development of the mouse mammary gland, and then the role of steroids and the regulation of egg white protein synthesis in the chick oviduct, and then eventually switched my lab to studying cadmium and zinc regulation of this small metal binding protein called metalthionine, and that led into this collaboration with Ralph Brinster, who's a veterinarian at the University of Pennsylvania, and we made some of the first transgenic mice, and that developed into a very productive 15-year collaboration where we used all kinds of transgenic techniques to study many, many different kinds of aspects of uh, mouse biology from cancer to diabetes to cell-specific gene expression and how enhancers work to spermatogenesis. And eventually out of that, we would, I can tell you about it later, but we kind of decided that Actually, Ralph Brinster decided that you know neurobiology is a field that you know it's, you can study some things in cell culture, but eventually you you've got to look at the whole animal, and that these genetic techniques might be well adapted to dissecting uh, neurobiology issues. And that was around 1980. That's about 1985. And then I didn't know squat about neurobiology, so it was the first postdoc who applied who had some interest in neurobiology that kind of set the direction. Ed Beishi, who had, as a graduate student, cloned all of the genes in catecholamine biosynthesis from bovine adrenal glands. And so he came to the lab with cDNAs for Th and PNMT, the last enzyme in catecholamine biosynthesis. And he thought DBH and dopamine decarboxylase. And we started with PNMT and DBH, but it turned out that his antibody for DBH was actually against chromogranin A, so that set my student back about two years. <laughs> but regardless, I give Abe the credit for setting the direction uh, in 1985, and what well, here it is 23 years later, we're still working on I wanted to spend most of the time talking about um, your work on, on goal-directed behaviors and, and your story about motivation. So I first and foremost, so could you just describe motivation and how you view it in a physiological sense and how you, you would distinguish it experimentally from just wanting or liking a stimulus? <laughs> Those are you know, issues that have been debated 
by lots of prominent people for a long time. And, and motivation can, you know, be many different things from, you know, just getting up off the couch and doing something rather than just sitting there and doing nothing. Uh, and another aspect of motivation is kind of how hard are you willing to work for a particular goal? You know, you say somebody's really motivated if they study hard all the time in order to achieve some kind of a goal. So that's kind of a different kind of motivation than just getting started and initiating a behavior. Um, and that versus wanting and liking, I mean, I would, the experiments that I talked about today, I think clearly established that even in the absence of dopamine, mice like sucrose, they like sweets. And so I would argue, if you use wanting and liking as terms, that the dopamine, and mice without any dopamine, don't want it. They don't want to initiate the behavior. They're apathetic. So let's backtrack a little bit. And can you describe, I think it's worth taking a little time to describe your dopamine deficient mouse and its, its phenotype and its utility as a conditional model versus the other techniques that have been used, traditional okay. knockouts and pharmacological um, So let's start with what has been a very powerful tool early 70s, it was discovered that there was a small compound called 6-hydroxydopamine that if you administer to a mouse or a rat, I guess in those days, you can selectively kill catecholamine-producing neurons. And uh, Ungerstead showed early on that if you kill all the dopamine neurons that project to the dorsal striatum, you end, actually end up with an animal that won't eat and will starve to death. And if you kill most, but not all, the neurons, they can be kept alive by gastric feeding every day, um, but they're really a very unmotivated, apathetic type of rat. And then subsequently, people have killed dopamine neurons that project to specific brain regions. And then sometime later, the pharmaceutical industry began to make antagonists for all of the dopamine neurons as they were discovered, and people would give them systemically, and then they'd give them in specific brain regions to try to elucidate what's, what dopamine function is. Our approach is a genetic approach, and what we did was selectively remove the critical enzyme for making dopamine, um, and the consequence, you end up what we call a dopamine-deficient mouse. So it's very severe. Uh, although the mice are born at the normal frequency, in the first 10 days after birth, they perform as little pups pretty well. About day 10, and more progressively until about day 20, they become lethargic, and they don't suckle adequately. They gradually lose body weight, and they will all die eventually. But one can rescue these mice by giving them L-DOPA, the product of the enzyme that we inactivated, which is tyrosine hydroxylase. And it's like the same compound that you would give people with Parkinson's disease. And the mouse can, all the dopamine neurons are there, but they just can't make dopamine. You give them L-DOPA, and they know exactly what to do with it. They convert it into dopamine, put it into vesicles, and the dopamine neuron fires, they release dopamine. 
and within minutes of giving the animal L-dopa, they can do all the things that normal mice can do. But one injection of L-dopa only lasts eight to ten hours, and eventually they get back into their hypo-dopaminergic state. And so basically you have the same mouse that ten hours a day it has dopamine on board, 16 hours a day, 14 hours a day, it doesn't have dopamine, so you can study the same animal with and without dopamine. It's turned out to be a very powerful, powerful model for dissecting some of the functions of, of dopamine. So a, a lot of ink has been spent making the case for the VTA dopamine projection, mediating goal-directed behaviors. Um, You've shown that motivated behaviors can at least be partially rescued by restoring dopamine function exclusively in the dorsal projection um, using your retroviral um, rescue techniques. So how do you reconcile the dorsal versus ventral-centric view of the dopamine hypothesis? So that's a very good point. Uh, there are a variety of techniques for rescuing dopamine signaling. The one we use uh, basically restores dopamine synthesis just in the neurons that project to particular brain regions. For example, only the dorsal, even the dorsal lateral part of the striatum. And as you said, those mice can perform a lot of functions, a lot of learning kind of functions, uh, goal-directed functions in a completely normal way. Whereas other investigators using the 6-hydroxydopamine approach or the antagonist approach have suggested that many of these behaviors depend upon, at least to some extent, the ventral striatum. So there are two ways out of this. One is to say that if you have dopamine only in the dorsal striatum, you can accommodate and learn to function with that limited distribution of dopamine release. Because remember these experiments, you put the virus in, you wait days, and most of the behavioral testing is done weeks afterwards. So there's lots of time for adaptation. And we know that people who have brain injuries of one sort or another can eventually gain back certain functions by presumably compensatory, maybe even rewiring types of mechanisms. We now know that stem cells can proliferate and do things, so there are lots of possibilities along those lines. The other possibility is that the dorsal striatum and the ventral striatum can always do the same things, and maybe just the dorsal striatum kind of takes over if the ventral isn't there. And I would posit that the people who study and think the ventral striatum is very important have never done the comparable experiment in the dorsal striatum, and the reason they haven't, because if they remove all the dopamine in the dorsal striatum, those water. rats will die. You have to feed them every day by hand. Nobody wants to do that. So they, the animals where they do the dorsal lateral, dorsal uh, dopamine manipulations, they've always knocked it down, but never out. And in our animals, it's out or on. And so I think they've never really done the right experiment to say what the dorsal striatum is really important for, because they've never completely removed dopamine there. Carlos. Um, so do you think also that perhaps when, in the case of Parkinson's disease, where um, patients, one of the 
symptoms of Parkinson's disease is not a symptom, but one of the, the underlying biological um, basis of Parkinson's disease is that the dopaminergic cells die. And um, it's thought that the first dopaminergic cells to go are the ones that are the most lateral ones, the ones in substantia nigra pars compacta, which happen to be the ones that project to the dorsolateral striatum. And the symptoms of Parkinson's disease don't appear until the vast majority of dopaminergic cells are gone. But the symptoms uh, do appear at some point, and one can assume that it's the ventral segmental area dopaminergic neurons that are still surviving once the symptoms are appearing. And so I, I think that this kind of argues towards your experiments, where you only rescue the dorsolateral striatum and, and manage to recover a lot of the behaviors that are lost, um, similar to the behaviors that are lost in Parkinsonian patients. Do you, do you agree? Or? I agree with that. Uh, you know, some people would argue... Well, look, you know, the most profound phenotype of your dopamine-deficient mice is that they starve, but that they're, they're not motivated to eat. But people with Parkinson's disease, we think of them in terms of having movement disability and not a, an appetite disability. But the, there are two things to think about there. One is that in our mice, dopamine is completely gone, and in Parkinson's disease, it's going down gradually. And... It's certainly reduced, but it's not gone. And we can ask the question of how much dopamine do you need in the brain for normal, adequate feeding? And it's 3% of normal. And Parkinson's patients never get to 3% of normal. If they're at 3%, they're dead. And, and if you take people with severe Parkinson's and you give them L-DOPA for the first time, what was done you know, 30 years ago now, and they say, Wow food actually tastes good. <laughs> you know, it's all anecdotal. but yeah. And people with Parkinson's, they have difficulty manipulating the utensils and getting the fork to their mouth and this sort of thing. And, of course, they have caregivers that make sure they eat adequately. So I don't think we really know what the function or the role of dopamine and appetite and feeding in Parkinson's really is because... It's, it's much more complicated. So the, um, the, the converse to that, of course, is when Parkinson patients receive L-DOPA, there's not that much dopamine cells left. left. <laughs> and um, if, if, as you have shown in your previous papers, that it is uh, phasic activity is necessary, um, how much phasic activity is actually necessary? So if a Parkinsonian patient only has 10% of his dopaminergic cells left, and those ones are mostly the medial cells, um, that still seems to be sufficient to bring him back to normal, what appears like as a normal person, um, until they run out of L-DOPA again. Um, and, and, but that now kind of is like saying we're recovering the ventral tegmental area dopamine. So it seems like your, your second posit was, seems to be kind of correct. It's just that both the dorsolateral region and the ventral regions have the ability to perform both tasks. Um, it's just which one you actually recover first, or which one you rescue first. I think that I mean, we haven't begun to address where you need phasic burst firing dependent release of dopamine for different kinds of behaviors. So we haven't talked about it yet, but we've also made a mouse 
So first you need to know that dopamine neurons are normally firing tonically at a fairly low level, and then superimposed on that are these bursts of activity that probably are the consequence of sudden bursts of excitatory input into dopamine neurons or release of GABAergic inhibition. Regardless what the mechanism is, there are these bursts of activity, and the general idea is that those bursts are a salient signal. Something as important is happening in your environment. Pay attention to it so that you can facilitate learning about that particular environment. So but they're can, not the learning signal. And because you're dopamine deficient mice, I think, can learn can some learn. things without any dopamine at all. Right. And that brings up another point, and that is that dopamine is a neuromodulator. It modulates other circuits. It's not part of the circuit, the rec circuit itself. It's, it's, it modulates it, facilitates it. Charlie? Well, one of the things that struck me about your work and also about what you were just saying with Carlos is that the experiments end up dissecting some words that used to be thought of as having a single meaning. So a good example is this uh, uh, business with motivation. So uh, the mouse, the dopamine deficient mouse in your experiment, when he's in his cage, he sits and does nothing. He won't eat, he won't, won't drink, he doesn't pay any attention to any of the other mice. So you might say he's a completely uh, uh, sensory unresponsive animal. But when you put him in the water maze, he would swim it. No, he wouldn't swim well. But he would swim. He wouldn't drown. And he, and he wouldn't swim to get out of the water. Right. He would but, just swim. But he also didn't drown. Right. And, and this uh, corresponds roughly, I admit roughly, <laughs> with the, all of these anecdotes about Parkinson's disease, whereas Parkinson's patients have really bad freezing and all kinds of movement disorders, and suddenly a car is headed toward them and they jump out of the way. And a sort of demonstration that the motor system still works in those people, and demonstration in your mice that the motor system still works. So in that case, if you said, if if we say as we, I guess we want to, just uh, by impulse we look at it and we say, well, this mouse has no motivation. That's his problem. And yet, when I put him in a dire situation, sink or swim, literally sink or swim situation, <laughs> the mouse will swim. And a similar thing with a Parkinson's patient seems unable to initiate a movement, except when movements really have to be initiated, then they can still be initiated. We so, haven't proven it, but I would guess that in both the swimming case, uh, well, in the swimming case, that it's probably the neurogenergic system that gets activated and can subsume some of the functions of dopamine. So some motivating stimuli, it seems to me that that what those data say is that some motivating stimuli engage one kind of motivation circuit in the brain, and another kind of motivation stimuli can affect other motivational circuits in the brain, and the motivation isn't just one, one thing. And, and we have no way of taking it apart until we can start to actually break one circuit and see what's left. And so these kinds of experiments that are and the more specific they get at breaking, specifically breaking certain circuits, they start to not just take apart the brain, but they take apart the words that we use to describe behavior. Great, great point. Rama? Oh, yeah. So I, I just wanted to come back to the L-DOPA on the cause of stock. <clears throat> so you, bait, you inject L-DOPA into the stratum, right? Oh. 
subcutaneous, but it just essentially floods system. Right. So how does the how does that tie into the notion that you have this pattern activity of neurons putting out dopamine? Some of them sometimes in bursts and sometimes you know just spontaneously output. So you get this really sort of pattern output of dopamine itself. So how does L How does injecting L dopamine? So L dopa by itself doesn't do anything. L-dopa is a precursor for dopamine. Oh, I see, I see. So you give L-dopa, it doesn't act, there's no receptor that responds to L-dopa. It's taken up by cells, right. and if it's a dopamine neuron, it takes it up, and then it has dopa decarboxylase, yeah. and it has VMAT2, so it takes the dopamine that it made and transports it into vesicles, and then when the dopamine neuron fires, the vesicles have dopamine in them, and they release dopamine in whatever pattern of firing that dopamine neuron has. So it really is just that the neurons anyway firing away in its usual way, that has not been altered. It's That's just right. the fact that it's and not been putting on shown that. It's not actually. Right. And I kind of like saying that they're firing blanks right. they're firing in the blanks. absence of L-dopa. Right. So you give Absolutely. them L-dopa, now they fill up the vesicles, and now they're putting bullets in their dopamine neurons, and they're firing bullets, and things happen. That's, that's okay. um, actually pretty interesting because um, the, what, what is thought of in Parkinson's disease is that it's the death of the dopamine cells that causes all these symptoms. Yet we can recover the symptoms with L-dopa um, or we can rescue the lack of whatever the symptoms are in Parkinson's disease with a few remaining dopaminergic cells as if they were shooting blanks. The remaining dopaminergic cells Dopamine, no, dopaminergic. are not using L-DOPA as efficiently as they could because you can give them more and those neurons can make more dopamine and relieve some of the symptoms for a short period of well, many hours, several hours, depending on... Are we sure that's how L-DOPA works? Or is it possible that L-DOPA is going through some other metabolic pathway and affecting something else? If there is another metabolic pathway, I'm unaware of it. <laughs> uh, so serotonin neurons can make and release dopamine in, under some unusual circumstances. Yeah, um, people argued that if you kill dopamine neurons with 6-hydroxydopamine in rats, in neonates, that they will compensate and perhaps using the serotonergic system, and they'll grow up to be normal adults, rats. Not pretty normal. Whereas if you use the same dose of 6-hydroxydopamine in an adult rat, and you, get, you will kill all the dopamine neurons, and they will die. And so they argue, yeah, if you kill them early in development, there's a compensatory mechanism. And so we've actually done the experiment in the mouse. If you kill all the 6 hydroxy kill all the dopamine neurons, would they actually be better off than not having the ability to make dopamine? The answer is no. If you kill them all, the animals grow to about 10 days, just fine. Kill them as neonates. They grow to about six, 10 days, they lose weight, and they're all dead at day 21, just like if they didn't have dopamine. So I think dopamine is the critical transmitter, and in the rat experiments, they just didn't give enough 6-hydroxydopamine to the neonate. So how about the tyrosine hydroxylase positive neurons in the striatum? There's a small number of them. Oh. <laughs> I think. Uh, I know they've been very controversial all along. I, you know, the ones that I know about are 
they're visualized with fluorescent markers driven by some transgene. Uh-huh. And I've worked with transgenic mice for 25 years, and I know you can get ectopic expression. And I would predict that, yes, those neurons in those mice are expressing green fluorescent protein in the striatum, but they are not real dopaminergic neurons. Have you done a, a lineage tracing of tyrosine hydroxylase? That's your experiment. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that um, would prove it. Um, no. Um, it is true, you know, well, you can kind of do a crude man's lineage tracing if you take dopamine transporter or TH and you use, I'm sorry, dopamine transporter driving query recombinase or tyrosine hydroxylase driving query recombinase, both by gene targeting, so you don't have to worry about not having all the regulatory elements, and then cross it to a reporter line that gets activated by Cree. You can see all the cells at any time during development that express TH or dopamine transporter. And with TH, of course, you get all the dopaminergic neurons, you get the noradrenergic neurons and the locus ceruleus and the brainstem and whatnot. But there are lots and lots of other neurons in the brain, olfactory bulb, lots of other. It's a real mess. So TH is expressed transiently during development in lots of places, maybe even in the striatum. And so TH as a promoter is not a good choice for these experiments. If you're just going to look at green proteins, green cells in the adult and record from them or something. The dopamine transporter is much, much better, but still not perfect. Larry's wife, the postdoc who did this, sees some cells in the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, that kind of area, scatter, just very few, but he sees quite a few there that also are one of these populations that transiently expresses TH early in development and then shuts off in the adult. Um, So I think it's possible that there can be transient expression, and whether it's important or not, I don't know. I would argue that it's probably not very important. Gary, I didn't really quite understand your question. So how would... Analyzing the lineage of the cells tell you whether they were really dopamine cells in the striatum or not. Well, those cells sometime during their history express uh, tyrosine hydroxylase. But as Richard mentioned, that may have been uh, uh, transient. And so in the adult, if they expressed it transiently during development, um, they'll be permanently labeled in the adult. But you don't know whether they're still expressing it or they once express it. But I guess the, the real experiment is if you can isolate those, those single cells and truly identify that tyrosine hydroxylase is active in, in those I mean, it's cells. Got to be, it has to have TH, it has to have dopa-decarboxylase, it has to have VMAT2. Uh, and if it's a real dopaminergic neuron, it probably has dopamine transporter. It has to have all of those genes. So, you know, show me it has all of those and that it's actually making dopamine, and it's actually important, <laughs> that I'll begin to, to think that it has so some... Yeah, so what is, what is the definition of a dopamine cell or a glutamate cell? What, what defines it as, as such? The ability to make the neurotransmitter and put it into a vesicle, and yeah, I think that's it, yeah. basically. So I was wondering, though, if you were thinking that 
goat mean cells all come from a single lineage? Do you think that's uh, likely? Because there are dopamine cells in the hypothalamus and the olfactory bulb and the midbrain and the in retina. the periphery. In the the retina. Retina. Those are all different And lineages. they're all sort of different lineages, I reckon. Different. Is that not true? Yeah. And so the dopamine neurons, for example, in the hypothalamus, at least one set of them, the tubular infundibular system, that dopamine is going to go to the portal system to regulate pituitary and prolactin release. It's an inhibitor. Those neurons, they want dopamine to be secreted like a hormone. They don't have dopamine transporter. They don't want to take it back up again. They want to make it and get it out of there. So they are TH positive and DDC positive and DMAT2 positive, but then DAT negative. They so they're unquestionably do. dopamine neurons, though, even though they don't have that. They are dopamine neurons. So, yeah, so people but they may don't say, re- take it up again. They don't want to recycle it. They may say those are not dopamine cells. They don't have that. So this is kind of a, a nice segue. You introduced the hypothalamus, which is another area that's involved in goal-seeking or rewards, such as feeding. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you're doing recently with the, uh, uh, the circuitry of the feeding behavior? And the $64,000 question, wait a second, we're in an economic turmoil right now. The $32,000 question <laughs> is how is that integrated with the dopaminergic system, the hypothalamus and the midbrain? So I can answer the second part easily. We don't know how they, where they intersect. <laughs> we do know, well, let me, for the sake of your audience, just remind you that genetics... Pharmacology and physiology have all, I think, clearly established that a small population, maybe up 5,000 of the mouse neurons, that make a precursor protein called proopiomelanocortin is critically important for regulating feeding. When these neurons are active, they process proopiomelanocortin and make a small peptide called alpha-MSH. And that Alpha-MSH, acting on postsynaptic receptors, inhibits feeding. And we know that leptin and insulin and many other hormones and many other neurotransmitters impact on the PUMC neurons, proopiomelanocortin or PUMC neurons, to regulate feeding. Right next door, there's a population of neurons that make neuropeptide Y. And early on, people thought that NPY had exactly the opposite effect. It stimulates feeding. And the reason is shortly after NPY was discovered, physiologists injected NPY into the brain of rats, and the rats ran to the food and ate voraciously. And if they did it every day, the rats would get fat. And subsequently it was learned that the NPY, along ultimately with other transmitters, can inhibit the POMC neurons. So you have this inhibitory system, neighboring neurons inhibit them and that then allows feeding it was the simplest idea and so a student in my lab 13 years ago now knocked out the gene that makes neuropeptide Y and we learned to predict that such mice if you don't have this feeding neurotransmitter they ought to be little runts and they might even starve but nothing happened they were normal body weight. You put them on a high-fat chow, they get fat. They fast them for 24 hours and give them food back. They run to the food and eat. They maintain their body weight just fine. And furthermore, leptin had just been discovered 
and everybody thought leptin acted by regulating NPY and these animals. So you might think if you don't have NPY, you won't respond to leptin. If anything, they responded better to leptin than normal. So that idea was, was wrong. We now know that leptin can act directly on the PUMC neurons as well as on many other neurons. So the physiologists, they hated us. Oh, our favorite neurotransmitter, neuromodulator, uh, isn't functioning in the pathway that they thought was critically important. And they said, well, feeding is so important, of course you can compensate. And that's reasonable enough, except that we've made the dopamine deficient mice at the same time. Also works through G-protein coupled receptors. If feeding is so important, why don't those mice eat? <laughs> so the simple logic doesn't hold very well. But regardless, we spent many, many years trying to figure out what this hypothetical compensatory mechanism might be. And ultimately discovered there's a second peptide made by the same neurons called a GUDI-related protein. And it acts by blocking alpha-MSH signaling. So, so alpha-MSH normally inhibits feeding, so you block alpha-MSH signaling, and that should stimulate feeding. And sure enough, the NPY, AGRP co-expressing neurons project to all the same places that PUMC neurons project. So, you knock out AGRP, nothing happens. You know, so then you said, well, AGRP can compensate for NPY, and NPY can compensate for AGRP, so you've got to knock them both out. So that was done. We didn't do it. My former postdoc did that when he went to Merck. They're still normal. Okay. And at that point, we thought, well, you know, let's just learn to, let's kill these neurons. If we kill the neurons and nothing happens, then I don't care what they make. They're just adventitious neurons. So we targeted the diphtheriotoxin receptor to these neurons, and then you can inject diphtheriotoxin and kill the neurons. And if you do that, the mice starve to death. So, okay, the neurons are important. They do something that's important in the adult, and what is it? And we began to realize that it was probably GABA, major inhibitory transmitter, and have subsequently done a number of experiments that convince us at least that it probably is GABA that's critically important for, for feeding. And suddenly remove that GABA signaling, you dysregulate critical circuits, which we believe are on the brainstem, that inhibit feeding. That you can regularize the output of these postsynaptic cells, uh, then you can prevent the starvation phenotype. How ironic that it turns out to be a regular, fast-acting yeah. neurotransmitter. The whole field of feeding regulation, the hypothalamus, has been built up around neuropeptides. Big, heavy peptides. Without yeah. glutamate or GABA in there at all, which seems crazy. Uh, and it's just because the hypothalamus is so complicated, and you can't interpret an experiment where you just go in with a GABA antagonist or glutamate antagonist. It's just too messy. And they're... I didn't really address this, there are compensatory mechanisms that probably should be thought of in more in the terms of synaptic plasticity, uh, kind of adaptations for the loss of either neuropeptides or even fast-acting transmitters like GABA. 
Rama? As, as a general question, is there so you can be motivated to seek something that gives you a reward, makes you feel nice, or you can be motivated to flee something and let's say you save your life, right? Are they are these fundamentally different? I mean, or how are they different? Are the neural substrates for these different? So I think that dopamine is involved in both. Uh, dopamine is usually thought of as reward, but I think it also mediates aversive learning. I didn't talk about it much today, but there's a paradigm called fear-potentiated startle. If you are worried that something bad is going to happen, and you're walking through the woods at night, and you step on a twig, you're going to jump a lot more than if you're not worried. And so you basically have an apparatus that re records the startle response to a tone. Big blast of noise, and there's a given startle response. If you've trained the mouse that a light predicts a shock, and the mouse then sees the light just before it gets the startle tone, it jumps twice as much, okay? So it's really, you know, it's scared. It's like, I'm going to get a shock. And so when it hears the noise, it just has a reflexive startle. That amplification of the startle response completely depends on dopamine, i.e., I shouldn't say completely, a dopamine-deficient mouse has no startle response in response to the tone. So... Um, Larry Zweifel with the with the mice that don't burst dopamine neurons don't burst fire they also don't have a fear potentiated startle they generalized they learned very quickly that this apparatus I get shocks in here and they hate the apparatus but they don't startle anymore because They've just generalized everything. This is bad. <laughs> they haven't paid attention to the cue that's going to predict the shock. A normal mouse, early on, oh my God, in the training, they think that the cue light is the shock itself, and of course they have a very amplified startle. But eventually they learn that, oh, I don't have to worry unless the cue light comes on. So they've learned to pay attention to the cue. The dopamine or the burst firing deficient mice, they can't, haven't learned in the training sessions that we've given that the cue is what they have to pay attention to. They're just paying attention to the, this apparatus. Oh, yeah, that, that's bad, but it's only bad when the cue is on. They, they don't learn that. That's, that's, a, that's really interesting because uh, uh, Mark Unglis's lab in, in the neuroscience meeting showed a poster where if he, if he um, goes a little bit deeper into the VTA, he finds dopaminergic neurons that actually burst in response to a tail pinch of the animal. Yeah. Which, which in Larry, these, Larry these, sees that now, too. Yeah. He's looking in the burst-firing deficient mice, and yeah. we predict that they won't be there, or at least it'll be attenuated. Because like two, three years ago, everybody thought that all dopaminergic cells pause in response to an aversive stimulus or something and like that. But now, not everyone, actually finding, but, you know, not everyone, but the vast majority of people, but Mark certainly didn't believe it. <laughs> so that, that's real. That's yeah. really a robust signal. Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about it. So. It's interesting. And it's important for the, for the learning. 
At this point in the conversation, we asked Richard to talk about his early pioneering work with Ralph Brinster on transgenic technology. Richard took us through some of those early experiments and their ultimate goal of targeted recombination. So we're back in, this is about 1980, and we have just cloned the metallothionine gene, and we believe that metallothionine is regulated by metals, and we've got the promoter of the metallothionine gene, and it's fused to thymidine kinase. And this is before transfection into tissue culture cells. It's a viable deal. The other method at the time was injection into frog eggs. We tried it. It didn't work. Uh, just high constitutive expression, no regulation by cadmium. So Ralph Brinster injected this metallothionine thymidine kinase into fertilized mouse eggs, incubate them overnight with or without cadmium, and then the next day you mash up 10 eggs, not much tissue, measure TK activity. Certain amount of activity, if they've been incubated with cadmium, there's 10 times more activity. So we're, whoa, this is great. This is an assay to now dissect, we'll do mutations and whatnot, we'll figure out where the regulatory elements are that allow cadmium response, and maybe eventually we can use that to purify the transcription factor. So we're excited, but Ralph Brinster's an embryologist, and he thought, hmm, if these eggs actually express this metallothionine gene, why don't we take some of these injected eggs and transplant them into a pseudo-pregnant female and let them develop? So we get some mice that are born. He sends them to us. He asks us, "Are there any? Is there any evidence of this transgene in the in the in the mouse?" So it cuts off a piece of the tail. We do uh, molecular biology experiments. Say, so "Yeah, the thymidine kinase gene." is, in fact, in the tail of these, these mice. Well, metallothionine is expressed in the liver. Why don't you, Ralph, Ralph Brinster, why don't you take out a little snippet of the liver and grind it up and measure TK activity? Hey, look, there's 100 times more activity than normal. That's pretty cool. Why don't you give the animals an injection of cadmium and then take out a piece of liver? Oh, there's a thousand times as much TK activity. So in that experiment, we had A, shown that the transgene that was injected in the egg must have been incorporated into one of the chromosomes and then proliferated as the, as the cells proliferated during development so that it was present in the tail, that the gene was functional and could still be regulated. So that was all published in 1981. And then we thought, hmm, so if it's in the tail and in the liver, maybe it's even in the germline. So let's breed some of the animals and see if it's transmitted to the next generation. And so the next paper said, yep, it's in the offspring as well, and they also express thymidine kinase in a regulated manner. So that was the beginning of transgenics. And that paper was exciting to a certain group of people. It's the only paper I was telling Carlos this morning. We sent it into Cell. Ben Lewin was the editor at the time. Basically, sent back a letter. Of course we'll publish this. <laughs> it's the only simple acceptance of a paper we've ever had. Um, and then the idea was, we were, Ralph Brinson and I had never met yet. And I was on my way to Philadelphia to meet him in November of 1981. This is just shortly before our first paper was going to get published. And I stopped at Roswell Park in Buffalo, 
where there's a lot a good mouse genetics community was at the time. And the question I had for the people there was, all right, we've got this technology. What we want to do is correct a genetic defect. So what genes do we know about that have been cloned that could possibly use to rescue a genetic defect? And over lunch and beer, we talked and they said, well, there's this little mouse. It's half the normal size. And at Jackson Lab, they know that if you inject these mice with growth hormone every day, they will actually grow bigger. So they probably have a growth hormone deficiency. And Ron Evans had just cloned the rat growth hormone gene. So I get home and I call Ron Evans and say, look, let's use this metallothionine promoter that we know works. Let's fuse it to growth hormone and make transgenic mice. So we do that, inject it in mice. And Ralph Brinster injects it in, into mouse eggs, makes mice. And, you know, a few months later, Ralph called Saturday. Some of these mice are getting big. They're twice as big as normal. <laughs> and, well, let's take off, take a little piece of the tail of those mice and see, are those the ones that are transgenic? And sure enough, they are. And so we studied that in a big way for a long time. And what's interesting, uh, we used the rat growth hormone gene because it was cloned first. And most people think, well, Rats are bigger than mice, that's why they grew bigger. So they weren't thinking that they looked like an endocrinologist. So I wish we had used a shrew growth hormone gene uh, and shown that they still grew bigger. Uh, but I had to explain to them that you're making growth hormone now in the liver instead of the pituitary gland. And the liver is huge compared to the pituitary, and so mice have massive amounts of growth hormone. In fact, you look in the blood, and there are thousands of times normal levels of growth hormone. And in fact, if you look in the pituitary of those mice, there's no growth hormone. Because growth hormone normally feedback inhibits onto the hypothalamus to regulate growth hormone releasing factor. And that's completely suppressed by all of this growth hormone everywhere, so the pituitary is shut down. And then one of our early ablation experiments, I was just told, telling you about diphtheria toxin receptor. Early experiments just take the active subunit of diphtheria toxin and express that from the growth hormone promoter of transgene with growth hormone regulatory regions and diphtheria toxin. So you kill all the cells in the pituitary that make growth hormone. And these mice were just like the little mice, the little runty, little runty animals that are about half normal size. They also lack prolactin, which was the first evidence that there's probably a precursor cell that makes both growth hormone and prolactin, and then later they, they diverge and specialize into one or the other. So growth hormones expressed early, so the diphtheria toxins express early, and it clobbers both both lineages get clobbered. So that that was back in what, 1987, I guess. But that's where the transgenic came along, and it was in these weekly conversations with Ralph Brinster that you know, all right, this is cool technology. What are we going to do with it? When he would bring up. You know, well, neurobiology is a nice direction to be thinking about. Okay. <laughs> so this is about the same time as uh, Smithies, Kapeki, and Evans were doing their thing with G-Targeting. Did you guys ever cross paths? 
during those early days in the exchange notes. Same kinds of meetings. And, you know, Ralph would always, you know, starting, oh, I would guess in 1984, hey, Richard, we've got to get targeted incorporation of genes. And we kind of didn't know about homology regions and (laughs) recombination or anything. But the first thing we tried to do I was working with Mike Cox. He was working on flipase as a recombination enzyme. And so the idea was to put a flip recognition sequence into the mouse genome and then have a plasmid with a flip FRT site, we call it now, inject that plasmid with purified flipase and try to get targeting to a specific locus, not a homologous gene, but to a pre-integrated flip recombinase sequence. And so we had actually a mouse that had half a growth hormone gene with an FRT site. We would inject the other half with an FRT site in the intron. And if it recombines, you get a functional growth hormone, the mouse would get big. That never worked. Uh, we got transgenic mice and whatnot. So then, you know, eventually we learned from Mario and others that, yes, you needed homology. And so we tried desperately to correct the E-alpha-2 locus, which has a 500 base pair deletion in one strain of mice. And so we injected a gene that flanked that and was pure homology and tried to rescue that 500 base pair deletion. We made 500 transgenic mice and analyzed them. And there was actually one, maybe two, can't remember exactly, but there was a homologous recombination event. The deletion was gone. And I don't understand it now, and I didn't then. There were also many mutations at, that also occurred that we detected by subsequently cloning it out and sequencing it. So I don't know where the mutation came from. But anyway, we didn't correct the function of the gene. I think we did so have... So were you using positive-negative selection? Uh, this is injecting into mouse eggs. There's Jill no selection just, at okay. all. It's just brute force. But subsequently, Brad Lowell... Um, not well a step known, but he was making transgenic mice with, uh, I think, beta-2 adrenergic receptor construct. And he had two homologous recombination events out of maybe 24 injected animals. So it can occur, and I still think that you could get targeted recombination if you were to inject uh, fertilized mouse eggs, maybe along with a nuclear extract from ES cells, I think it would work. But never tried it. Right, well, thanks for spending this time with us. Oh, this has been welcome. Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.